0: So this morning, we're going to open um, the sermon with uh, a scripture read from Acts 2, 23 to 24. You can flip there if you want, but I'm going to read it over. You can listen along. And it says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and and signs that god did among you through him just as you yourselves know though he was delivered up according to god's determined plan and foreknowledge you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him god raised him up ending the pains of death because because it was not possible for him to be held by death this is god's word
1: thanks bj i'm glad that you explained the shirt, because i was going to explain to everyone here that it's not casual sunday but but I'm just repping that the youth were, and I'm actually super blessed. So BJ and I have been doing youth ministry since he started doing youth ministry, and he actually took over for me at my former church where I was doing the youth um, ministry there. And um, it's a blessing for me to pull out of the office this next week, and I'll be in a cabin counseling under his leadership. Um, and I think that that is a beautiful picture of what God does through people as He pulls them into his care as he raises them up into leadership positions that us in leadership get to submit to their authority and serve alongside them in roles that may seem torturous to others. But I love it, and I'm really excited to be cabin counseling this year to pour myself into these young guys and to watch the Lord do something powerful there. It's an honor to be able to do it. BJ just read from Acts 2. Verses 22 through 24. Speaking in Acts chapter 2 is Peter at Pentecost. You'll probably be familiar with that sermon. It was pretty powerful. Thousands gave their lives to Jesus after that sermon. And it's an ironic sermon if you think about it in context with the rest of the gospel accounts. As you think about all the things that we saw Peter do. Including run when Jesus was arrested. Including betray him. And deny him. Judas betraying him. Uh, ultimately into the hands of the authorities, but Peter betraying Jesus, even knowing him, as he denied him three times. And so Peter is in this position in the beginning of Acts where the Holy Spirit fills him, and now he's this man who's preaching this sermon with power. And not only with power, he says something very interesting in that passage. And I want us to bear this in mind as we study our passage in Mark chapter 8 this morning. And if you want to turn to Mark chapter 8, that's where we're going to be. But I want you to hear what B.J. read one more time. Just one short statement. Peter says this in Acts 2 verse 23, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. That's a really interesting statement coming from Peter, considering what we're going to look at this morning. Because Peter had some misconceptions about Jesus initially. And it wasn't just Peter. Many Jews would have misconceptions about Jesus. And so I wanted to talk about this in introductory. And as you can see on the screen, the, the sermon title is Misconception Correction. It just sounded fun. It sounded like Conjunction Junction to me. I started singing Schoolhouse Rock. I was like, ooh, misconception correction. There's... What's your infection? I don't know how you'd like rhyme that next line, but a misconception by definition is is this, you guys, a view or opinion that is incorrect based on faulty thinking or understanding. Okay? It's a view or opinion that's incorrect, but it's based on faulty thinking or understanding. And we've all had misconceptions before. And we likely have some now, and we will certainly have more misconceptions later. You're like, no, I will understand everything perfectly. You are experiencing delusion right now. It's okay, you're in good company. Uh, We're all still learning, and we'll continue to learn until the Lord's return. Some of the wisest men who are older than me have told me that they have continued to grow and learn throughout their lives. And in fact, I don't think that there's any excuse for any of us as we get older to become brittle and unteachable. As... One of my mentors when I was a young man, whom you might know, Chuck Smith, used to say, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. It was his own little beatitude. But I agree with him. I absolutely agree with him. The Lord intends to keep us soft. He calls us clay. How useful is clay that's hardened? How easy is it to mold? The Lord intends to keep us soft, and we are to keep learning and keep growing until the Lord's return. And some misconceptions on our part, need to be corrected by the Lord. They need to be reshaped and reformed. And some are less important than others. For example, my opinion about the title hopes of my favorite sports team could be terribly misconceived. There could be a large misconception about my team's ability, depending on how the season's going, to actually make a title run. And if you know that I'm a Mariners fan, you know my suffering. And I, I've ceased to say to people like Mike Parent, who's at the doors, he's not in the room today, he's out, he's out serving, but I, I always look and say, I don't even say that we're going to have a good year anymore, we just know we're not. Uh, and I hope that, those mis- that eventually is a misconception, my team wins the title. You guys, there are things in life that having a misconception about, however, sports is trivial, it's not important, but there are some misconceptions that can alter our course of life. There are some misconceptions that can ruin a relationship. They can cost us a job. They can harm or even destroy our families. There are things that we must be adjusted by the Lord on. There's issues, there's situations, there's things that we need to let him continually adjust and correct our misconceptions. Some might call that calibration, and we know how important that is. You guys, there are misconceptions about God that can spiritually sidetrack us, or even set us on a course of false thinking that entangles us and shipwrecks our faith. Paul said this to Timothy in his first letter, in First Timothy chapter one, verse eighteen. He says, "Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the good fight." Verse nineteen says, "Having faith." and a good conscience which some have rejected and have shipwrecked their faith. That faith and good conscience don't come by misunderstanding who God is. Faith in a good conscience comes through understanding who God is and walking in obedience to it. I'll say it this way. Faith in a good conscience comes by receiving his word, believing what it says, and walking in obedience to it. I believe that everything we need to know about life and godliness has been given to us right here. I believe that this is what God has given to us in his word to know everything that we need to know about life and godliness. Has God told us every tiny little bit about his character, every minute detail? Do we understand how the ma- mind of God works? <laughs> I think if everyone's like, yeah, I got him pegged, dude. You're like, Danger, <laughs> dangerous thing. We here, a dangerous. We our operation. Need to know, need to know, right? And yet, so we stray from it. Either in our life, we just, you know, it's like the song says. It's like the old hymn. We're prone to wander, and so we start wandering away from His Word. And we start poking around in places we shouldn't be. I picture my neighbor's chicken, who just pokes around in the street, you know. And I'm like. I, I mean, Sarah's like, go get it. Well, I can't. It's like, you think I'm catching that? Like, have you seen me run recently? You guys, we're like that though. We start poking around in places we don't belong and the chicken was clearly in danger. I prayed for him. <laughs> you guys, we get into dangerous waters. We get to live our lives based on our misconception of what's right, based off what we feel is right and not what he has said is right. God has told us in his word everything that we need to know for life and godliness. And we need to go to his word, and we need to see what he has to say and adjust our lives accordingly. We've all been in this boat, haven't we? Where we've had misconceptions about who God is, about what he expects of us. Well, so have the disciples. And we see it happen here with Peter in a pretty big way at the end of Mark chapter 8. And as we pick this up, we're going to see Jesus firmly, lovingly, yet firmly, correct the misconception of Peter about the road and the role of the Messiah. About what was coming for him next. And all that he's going to go through. Peter's already confessed rightly in the previous passage that Jesus is the Messiah. He believes Who Jesus is, but what Jesus is going to do, Peter is not on board with. And in the second part of our text this morning, after Jesus corrects Peter's misconception, I believe that as Jesus gathers this crowd and his disciples around him, we're going to see him correct some misconceptions on our part. I think that he's going to correct Peter, and then he's going to correct us. And so this is an amazing passage of scripture. Let's finish Mark chapter 8 together this morning, shall we? If you need a Bible there should be one in the pew in front of you if you have a device you're free to use it I encourage you guys get out your Bible let's read together mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 31 mark records for us this then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and scribes be killed and rise after three days he spoke openly about this Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To the word of Jesus. All their lives... Understand this. All their lives, the disciples had thought of the Messiah in terms of irresistible conquest. And they were now being presented with an idea or with a truth that staggered them. They had this picture of the Messiah being an irresistible conqueror. He was going to come in, he was going to conquer, and nothing was going to stand against him, not even Rome. When Peter confessed who Jesus was, back in verse 29... Just prior to this, he was correct in his identification of who Jesus is. He was correct, and Jesus even says, My Father revealed that to you, Peter. That's true. But his misconceptions about what the Messiah would do are the issue we see come to light almost immediately after his confession. And isn't that a fascinating thing for us to think about when we think about what God should be doing? When you think about what God should be doing in your life, And how often our thoughts and our lives start to take shape around, well, it should be this way, not this is what God's doing. How many times has our lack of understanding or our misconceptions about God made us jump to a different conclusion because we just can't process why he's doing what he's doing? How many of you have never, ever struggled with why God is doing something? Good. I don't feel alone. The deeper understanding of what Jesus had come to do is seen, I believe, in the titles used for him in verses 29 and verse 31. You almost exclusively see Jesus refer to himself as he refers to himself here in verse 31. Now the Jewish mindset or the disciples would think of him as Messiah, as Peter says in verse 29, but Jesus refers to himself as what? Son of man. Almost exclusively through the gospels, he refers to himself as son of man. It's a significant term. And I've made note of this before because Son of Man not only reveals Jesus' heart to associate with human beings as he is fully man and fully God, when he talks about Son of Man, he is associating with us in our humanity. But it's more than that too because as you might have guessed, he's pulling in some Old Testament truth as well. He's pulling in some truth of the Old Testament and there's a very powerful prophetic fulfillment connected to the Son of Man in the Old Testament. When the Jews of Jesus' day heard the term Messiah, they thought of conqueror, a king that would fight their military battles and defeat Rome. And what's interesting about that is the term son of man is connected to that conquering, to that ruling, to that kingship, but he does it in a different way. It's from Daniel chapter 7. I think Jesus is drawing attention to this passage oftentimes when he refers himself as son of man because the nature of this text is so striking. In Daniel chapter 7, After we've read about the vision of the four beasts, Daniel has another vision. Beginning in verse 13, it says this, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, you may look at that and be like, well, that kind of proves Peter's point, doesn't it? That this is what they'd expect the Messiah to do. Sure, if you look at it in a vacuum, and if you don't consider all the other texts in the Old Testament that talk about the suffering of the Messiah. The suffering that he would endure. You see, Son of Man is associating in terminology with people and humanity, but there's so many verses that not only refer to the Son of Man as being king and having dominion and rule, but also his suffering. They're both accurate. You don't get one apart from the other. And this is the problem. This is where misconceptions break us. Church, hear me on this. So many times we have misconceptions about God because we separate his character. We look at one aspect of him and we forget the other. Like, oh, you see, God's just so gracious. He'll forgive me. But we forget that God is also holy. And some people go, God is so holy. Ah, And you're like, yeah, but he's gracious. He loves you. You don't have one without the other. They're both together. And you see, if we could just get our own thought process to be as congruent as the scriptures, we'd be okay if we just let the word of God mold the way that we think and the way that we live our lives, we would be all right. That's why God gave it to us. He says, obey my word. Follow my word. Do what it says. And you're like, but God, it says that you're gracious and that you're holy. And he says, yes, you're correct. It's interesting that oftentimes we focus on one part of God's character depending on what season we're in or what's going on in our family at that moment or what's going on in our world or what's going on in our country. We could start to look at certain parts and be like, oh, I'm just really connecting with this mercy right now. It's like, yeah, because you're sinning. You're like, oh, I'm just really into like, you know, the, the holiness of God. I'm really into like his purity. And it's like, yeah, but you're, you're judging other people with that. You're holding yourself up and saying, I'm doing this really well. And you're smacking other people upside the head for not doing it as well as you are. P.S. Look under pride in a biblical search. Right? We're supposed to see these things together. Because God is one. He's not divided. Peter wanted Jesus to be the conquering Messiah. He didn't want to accept the fact that Jesus said, you know, there's some passages, Psalm 22, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, that talk about the Messiah suffering. the talk about him being ripped up, torn up, not even recognizable, bleeding, broken, pierced, dying. And somehow they just go... Set all that aside and go, he's going to rule, he's going to be the king, he's going to kick out Rome, this is going to be great. They're just waiting for Jesus to walk in and take over. What do you think Palm Sunday was all about? That's coming, it hasn't happened yet in the story. But what do you think they were looking for on the Palm Sunday road? When they take the branches and they lay them down as a celebration of the coming victor. That was very symbolic of the Maccabean Revolt that drew in these ties from ancient times where they rose up against Antiochus Epiphanes and won these great military battles. What do you think they wanted? Do you think they were celebrating that Jesus was coming to die? No, they were celebrating the fact that they thought he was coming to conquer. And Jesus didn't ride in on a stallion, did he? He didn't ride in on a war horse. He rode in on a donkey, on a colt. And it says that that's the common posture and positioning of a merchant, of a commoner, of the son of man, not a conquering general. I think we misunderstand sometimes. We have misconceptions about the way that our God wins battles. So many times we think we're going to come in we're going to have this massive victory in our lives because God's just going to drop this thunderbolt and he's going to show everyone that I'm his kid. And he says, actually, in a moment, if you want to be a follower of me, says, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to take up the instrument of your death and you're going to follow me. Well, I tell you what, if that doesn't weed out the fakers, I don't know what will that's exactly what it does when you talk about death and suffering see it's not that Peter doesn't know who Jesus is he has misconceptions about what he's going to do and Jesus just shows Peter where his thoughts are coming from now we talk about this text a lot because it's commonly quoted right get behind me Satan it's not a fun thing to hear I can't imagine I'm glad I haven't heard it but you guys, this is tough. He says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. I believe in this sentence, in this statement, these two sentences that Jesus makes, he is completely loving and completely truthful. He's being completely loving to adjust Peter. Think about this. This was the devil tempting Jesus again to fall down and worship him. This was a temptation again of the enemy. For Jesus not to go to the cross, but to rule instead. What did the enemy try to get him to do during his temptation? Turn stones into bread. Jump off this ledge. I'll give you all this. You can conquer. You can rule. He was offering him rule and conquering and victory, which is exactly why Peter's rebuking him. Because Jesus just told him, I'm not going to Jerusalem to conquer. I'm going to Jerusalem to be mistreated, to be rejected, to be beaten, to be crucified, and die. And then I'm going to rise again. That's not the storyline Peter wants. He wants Jesus to rule. Who tried to get Jesus to rule? Get behind me, Satan. That's why he said it. He's not calling Peter Satan. He's saying that is the ideology and the thought process behind the enemy himself. And Jesus calls it what it is. It's a strange thing, and sometimes it's a terrible thing, that the tempter will speak to us in the voice of a well-meaning friend. I'm not trying to demonize, for lack of a better term, when a good friend of yours gives you bad advice and say, that's Satan working through them. No, they're thinking like him. And we need to be rooted enough in Scripture to look at good friends and say, you're wrong. I know you love me, but you're wrong. This is what God has called me to do. How often have we been shaken by good friends who had good intentions, but were misdirecting us? They were steering us in the wrong direction. And you've probably, I could think back and think of friends that told me things when I was younger, especially, and even now, even now, when it came to planting this ministry, and I knew the Lord had called me to it, and I had confirmation through prayer and and a leadership team, and people came up and said, no way. No way. God's not in it. Don't do it. And I had to look at them and say, get behind. No, I didn't say it I'd like that. But I. <laughs> I just told them the time is now. And I believe the Lord has confirmed this. And I have counsel around me that sees it. And I love you, but I'm going to do it. And it was exactly what the Lord had called me to do. How much more so ought we to let The Lord's word, when we're struggling with a sin and that friend comes alongside you and because they care about you, they compromise with the truth of God's word and tell you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. How much more so in that situation ought we to look at God's word and say, Lord, let your word be a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. You show me the way forward. Now, many of us have really good friends that mean well. But let me encourage you in your friendship to other people, be a person who does this, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Before you give advice, before you give counsel, before you speak to a situation in your friend's life, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Don't take that advice lightly. Consider it carefully. It says, let it dwell richly among you. Paul writes to that church in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Start singing to each other. That's what it says. Singing to God, he says, with gratitude in your hearts. Here's the thing. You let the word of God dictate how you advise each other. That's the truth. That's the love of Christ. And so Jesus rebukes Peter. He reveals what his misconceptions rooted in. It's satanic thought. And then he draws the crowd and the other disciples in. He pulls in a larger audience and he deals with the second type of misconception in this one section. He calls the crowd, it says, verse 34, you can look at the text. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? But whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Right on the heels of correcting Peter's misconceptions, Jesus calls the others and us to come to him and allow him to correct ours as well here's a misconception we might have and not even realize it about what God expects of us, about what Jesus has called us to. He corrects our misconceptions about what it means to be his disciple and what our lives ought to look like. Yes, even here in this country in the 21st century. Following Jesus requires of us selflessness And a readiness to be regarded as criminals. And a readiness to die. It requires that of us. Jesus never called on anyone to do or face anything which he wasn't prepared to do and face himself. You see, Jesus had to clarify and correct Peter first. Because Jesus was ready to go to the cross and was on the road to going to the cross at this moment. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And as they're heading in that direction, as that's the destination, Jesus needs Peter to understand, what I'm doing is an example. What I'm doing is not only your salvation, but he says this in John chapter 10, or sorry, John chapter 13, excuse me. My mind's like, click, 13. In John 13, he says, listen, when he washes their feet in the upper room the night that he's betrayed, he says, I'm giving you an example that you should do exactly as I have done for you. Now, They may have looked at the feet washing and been like, okay, what was Jesus about to do? Exactly what he calls us to do here. He denied his own desire. He denied, even in the garden when he said, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done to the Father. He denied what he desired as a flesh, not fleshly as in sin, but as a man who is fully human and feeling that tension, that anxiety of death that was coming upon him, he denied that to obey the Father. That's exactly what he asks us to do, and he doesn't ask us to do anything that he has not already done himself. And Jesus is asking nothing of you and I that he was not prepared to do, did, and completed, and finished, and perfected in his own life. Jesus not only. Did all of it perfectly, but he empowers us with his spirit so that we can follow in his footsteps. So that we can walk in the ways that he walked. He never asked us to do anything that he wasn't prepared to do and face himself. That's the characteristic of a leader who people will follow. Who people ought to follow. That is... The definition of leadership, not someone who gives orders, someone who is not going to ask you to do anything that they will not do themselves first, who will lead ahead. That's how Jesus led, that's how Jesus did things. How can leaders ask others to do something that they're unwilling to do? How can a true leader ask others to sacrifice what they're unwilling to sacrifice? They're not leaders. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me in the gospel will save it. Jesus, through his death, conquered sin. Through his death, he conquered sin. What does he call us to do? If we want to win at life, for lack of a better way of saying it, if you want to win at life, you cannot hold on to it. You have to let it go. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. There are certain things which are lost by being kept and saved by being used. Let me say that again. There are certain things which are lost by being kept and saved by being used. Any individual talent is like that. If it's used, it will develop into something greater. If someone refuses to use it, in the end that talent is lost life itself is the ultimate example what a tragedy it is to waste life on endeavors that are fruitless in eternity that are pointless if they have no point how much of our time is spent on endeavors like that how much of our time how much of our time is spent on a misconception of what the lord put us here to do we may recognize who he is. We may look at Jesus. He's, he's the Christ. He's the son of He is the Messiah, just like Peter. And then when Jesus says, so this is what we're going to do. We look at him and go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. How many of you have thought it? Maybe you didn't say it. Maybe some of you were bold enough to say it. But how many of you have thought it? I didn't sign up for this. When you became a Christian, you thought all your problems were going to be solved. You came to Jesus. It's the most glorious thing ever. We just we're just going to stay in church 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, singing songs, getting fed potluck foods. It's going to be the best thing ever. I'm never going to go through suffering. I'm never going to go through pain and all the Christians in the room are like, <laughs> "That's not how it rolls." Because Jesus says that we're only following him when we deny ourselves. We're taking up our cross. I think D.L. Moody said this really well and it convicted me this week yet again when I read it. Our greatest fear should not be a failure but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. My friends, my church family, I want you to use this as a tool to assess yourself this week. Are you succeeding at things that don't matter? If you are. I want you to respond to it. I want you to respond to something that Jesus is calling us to here. Who says, stop trying to hold on to your life. Stop trying to, con- to accomplish something for yourself here. Our greatest, sh- uh, our greatest fear should not be of failure. But doing really well or succeeding at something that doesn't matter. God gave us life to spend and not to keep. If we live carefully, always thinking first of our own profit, our ease, our comfort, our security, if our sole aim is to make life as long and as trouble-free as possible, do you ever wonder why there's so many fountain of youth stories? Right? If we make no effort except for ourselves... You're not gaining anything. You are losing every moment. You are losing in the end. But if we spend our life for others, if we forget health and time and wealth and comfort in our desire to do something for Jesus and for those whom Jesus died for, we will be winning all the time. Even if it looks like loss to the world. Jim Elliot understood this. You're probably familiar with his name. Husband of Elizabeth Elizabeth Elliot. He was a missionary who was trying to reach a tribe of Indians in Ecuador with the gospel. He was willing to lay down his life to bring the gospel to them, and in the end he did. In 1956, he was killed by some of the people from the tribe. He wrote in his journal prior to his death in 56, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus to wherever he takes you. Jim wasn't afraid or ashamed of the gospel. He was willing to die for it. A right response and a heart for all of us when we recognize that our Savior died for us. Even in the face of his coming, torture and death. Think about what Jesus says here in verse 38. Notice his confidence. It's caught me in this passage. He says in verse 38, For whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. Notice this. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Does Jesus seem like he's unsure about what's going to happen? we can have that kind of faith as well. We can have that kind of assurance as well that when we are going to lay our lives down to serve the Lord, that He is going to complete the work that He began in us. That He is going to redeem us. That He is going to say those words to us in Christ because of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus never sought to lure anyone to Him by the offer of an easy way. He sought to challenge men and women to awaken the boldness and moral courage in their souls by the offer of a way which none could be higher nor harder. He didn't offer you an easy life. He didn't offer to you and I even a road that will look like people around you. And so often we get caught committing this sin of comparison by looking and saying, well, why can't my life be like him? Why can't my life be like her? It's so easy. Rather than focusing on the walk that God has called you to personally. It's like he said to Peter at the end of John's gospel when he says, well, what about that disciple? He points at John, the author. He goes, what about that disciple? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, you know what? If I want him to live until I return, what's that to you? He says, walk with me. That's like the message of Jesus to every single one of us. Because all of us are like, (laughs) what? You know what I mean. And Jesus says, what's that to you? You walk with me. Eyes on me. Let's go. That's why scripture says looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It doesn't say looking at your partner as you run on the track. How many runners win the race by looking this way or this way? You don't win. You can't run fast that way. Head up. Your head is up looking to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Christ. He came not to make life easy, but to challenge people to the greatness of lowliness. I think that's the thing that the Lord has pressed into my heart over the last couple months more than anything else. The greatness of lowliness. You're like, it's an oxymoron, sort of, but not in God's economy, not the way he functions. You remember in Luke's gospel where Jesus is talking about, you know, the, they're at this dinner. And people are trying to get the best seat, right? It's like before the theaters had like assigned seating. You got there early, so you get the best seat. I want the middle, I want the row where I can put my feet on the bar, right? Like all the, all the young adults are like, yep, that's what I want to do, right? They're always looking for the best seats at these tables, at these dinners. And Jesus says, you know what you should do? When there's a dinner, right, the master has this dinner and he invites you all. He said, instead of coming up to the front to the seat of honor, why don't you sit at the end of the table? He says, because if you sit at the end of the table, then you're not going to be removed from the seat of honor and put there by the master because you sat in someone else's seat. Instead, you're at the end of the table. He's going to say, hey, why don't you come up and sit here? He says, because every person who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And a lot of times we think about the exaltation like I will be exalted. No, 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 no. Don't. It means to be lifted up. That word exalted means to be placed where you belong. That's why Jesus has been exalted with the name that's above all other names, Re-Philippians 2. But here's the thing. When, sorry. <laughs> but when you, when you look at what he has called us, what kind of a life he's called us to lead, he says, sit at the end of the table. And when the master looks, he says, hey, why don't you come up and sit at the fair? You'll be exalted. You'll be, oh, that's where I belong. Why? How do I know that's where I belong? Because I start at the very end. But let me just remind you of this. This is an important truth. You're at the table. You're at the table of God. You're at the feast. Thank you, Courtney. You're there. You guys, isn't that thrilling? You're at the table of the king. Who cares where I sit? It's like me at a baseball game. People are always like, oh, these seats. I'm like, I'm in the stadium, baby. I'm here. Woo. you know like, I'm the happiest when I'm sitting there in that baseball. you are like, I'm just in the stadium. That's all I want. You know? Can you work concessions? Sure. But I'm in the stadium. I'm there. How much more the table of God? You're at the table. And you can trust that he'll put you where you belong. If you're humble, that's the greatness of lowliness. That's the beauty of coming to the table and saying, I've been invited by the king himself. I'm here because of the precious blood of Jesus. And when it's my time and he wants me anywhere, he will move me. But so far as it depends upon me, I'm going to be at that table. Amen, little one. You guys, to associate with him through suffering and not be ashamed of it. To call a people to follow him. This is what Jesus aims to do. To call a people that will follow him in humble leadership and to bid them, as Bonhoeffer would say, to come and die. Because he said when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our calling. We ought to be passionate about it because we're at the table. Worship team, can you guys come on up? And look at the impact it had on Peter. As this whole story began with Peter, I see the passage in Acts 2 that we opened with as this beautiful understanding that Peter came to and that he then preached about at Pentecost, not too long after this. Not too long after this situation, Peter preached at Pentecost. After the Lord had died and risen again, He's preaching here in this sermon. I want to read this again to you in verse 23. Though, this is Peter speaking, he, speaking of Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. According to what? God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Peter started out rebuking Jesus for what he was saying. Peter ended agreeing with God that it was his plan all along. We need to take a page out of that. And remember that even though we may not understand right here, God is doing what's best. God knows what he's doing. Entrust yourself to him. Trust in his process. Trust in his plan. And remember that he's called every single one of us to deny ourselves, to take up the cross and to follow him. You guys... It's so encouraging to read at the end of that passage in verse 24 of Acts 2 remembering that God raised him up ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That applies to us because of Christ. In Christ, it is not possible for death to hold you. It has no power. Jesus has given that to us. Entrust your life to the one who will raise you up. Father, as we just consider these words, I hope that it's brought encouragement and joy and excitement to your people. Lord, that it's actually an amazingly encouraging thing to hear. Deny yourself. That means I don't have to fight to make something of myself. To take up my cross, meaning that I don't have to try and find a way to make my life significant, that it is significant because you breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and that when you take that life away, we enter eternity, and that our eternity is sure, Jesus, because of you. Because of what you accomplished on the cross, and because of your resurrection on the third day. You are so beyond good to us. You are such an amazing Savior. We love you. We thank you for your word. I pray that it would infuse joy into our hearts. And Jesus, you even said it in John's gospel that your desire was that your joy would be in us. Lord, I pray that that would be true of every person in this room, that your joy would be in our hearts. Jesus, because we have received what you've said. We've seen it in your word and we believe it and we want to walk according to it. Empower us by your spirit to do that. And Lord, I pray that you would minister as we worship you in song. We
0: ask it in your name. Amen.